John chapter 5. We're going to be focusing on verses 30 through 40 this morning. John 5, verses 30 through 40. We have been considering the claims of Christ, the confrontational claims of Christ. The things that Jesus says about himself here are things that no sane man would say unless they were true things. Uh, We're just far too comfortable with Christ. We are far too complacent with Christ. For this Christ claims to be none other than God himself in the flesh, the creator entering into his creation, the sustainer entering into that which he sustains. He has claimed that he is the one who gives life to whom he wills. He has claimed that he is the one who will execute judgment after death. He claims that he's the difference, the dividing line between life and death, heaven and hell, and that there is a day to come when he will but speak a word and all who have ever lived will be restored to life to stand before him in judgment. That's quite a claim. And significant claims deserve substantial support. Right? Significant claims deserve substantial support. Uh, my best buddy in college was a guy named Doug Blessington. Uh, Doug was a, a great athlete. I was not a great athlete, so I surrounded myself by great athletes. And so I looked like an athlete just in, by association. But Doug knew that he was a great athlete, and he could make some significant claims about his athletic abilities. Uh, it's a, short, a sort of University of North Carolina rite of passage for freshman students to live on South Campus, which means far away from actual campus, right? They just put South on it to mean far away. And back in my day, the South Campus dorms were not air-conditioned, right? So you're in the South, it's August, you don't have AC, right? It's misery. They've got it easy now. They're all air-conditioned and all, everything now. We've gone, we've gone soft. But Doug and I lived freshman year in Hinton James, named for the first student who enrolled in our nation's oldest public university in the year 1795. He is famous for walking the 90 miles from Wilmington, North Carolina, to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And so ironically, they named the dorm that was the longest walk to campus after the man famous for his long walk to campus. And so one day back in 2002, walking down the brick pathway to Hinton James, For some reason, Doug, out of the blue, boasted that he could throw one of the chocolate chip cookies that we had taken from Chase Dining Hall all the way over Hinton James' dorm. Massive, 10-floor dorm that houses 1,000 students. That is quite a cookie claim, right? And so my response to Doug as an 18-year-old young man was, oh yeah? Prove it. Prove it. And he did. It was magical. Uh, That little chocolate chip cookie soared over 120 feet into the air like a little delicious discus never to be found again. So big claim substantiated in a big way. Verse 30 begins the prove it section of John chapter 5. Jesus has made significant claims. Now he's going to start to support and substantiate and prove those claims. And he is going to prove those big claims by way of witness. Surely by now, I do not need to repeat myself about the importance of repetition in a text. Do you want to know what a text is about? Well, look for repeated words. Well, in the text before us, we have the word witness repeated 11 times. In the ESV, when we're about to read it, when you see the word testimony, it's the same word. The word translated testimony is the noun form of the same verb that is translated witness. They're all the same word. This section is all about witness. In 1963, Marvin Gaye asked, can I get a witness? Jesus is asking and answering that question in these verses. In this book that is all about belief and the life that is found through belief in Christ, then it makes sense to spend some time time on the reason for that belief. The scripture never tells us to just believe. Biblical faith is no blind leap into the dark. Biblical faith is an open-eyed leap into the light, a decision based upon the overwhelming evidence given by the all-knowing and all-good God. Do you believe? Great. Why do you believe? Do you believe? No. Well, why do you not believe? 
Have you truly considered the claims of Christ, his person and work, and have you considered the substantial evidence supporting those significant claims? That's what we want to do a little bit together this morning. There is no great place to break up this text. Uh, We should all do it all together, but I'm not a good enough preacher to do this whole thing together. So we've got to stop somewhere because there's just too much good stuff. So we're going to pick verse 40. Plus, the last use of the word witness comes in verse 39, and verse 40 is directly connected to it. And so I want you to notice again in verse 40 the stakes. Notice again that life is on the line. We're going to wrap up with Jesus saying, You refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so that refusal then is obviously death. And that makes these witnesses very important. These are the witnesses to the Christ who is life. We often share our life testimony. Well, these are literally life testimonies. Hear them. Heed them. By the grace of God, I have found the testimony of Jesus to be utterly compelling and convincing. And I want to share some of that with you this morning. And it should be that conclusive witness compels confident belief. And so we're going to pray for that to be the case today. Significant claims deserve substantial support. Well, what witnesses uh, does Christ marshal to substantiate his claims? Now, people number them differently. We'll see that here in a moment. But we're going to go with three primary witnesses. First, I want to establish our main point. First, we need to take note of a word in our text that we could easily pass over. Why such an emphasis on the importance of truth? Nope. Because of the importance of witness. Because of the importance of truth. I was too excited. So point number one, the big idea, Jesus is the truth. That's actually Jesus' main point. And the rest of it is simply supporting his argument. And so point number two, we're going to see Jesus point to John as his first witness. John bears witness to the truth. Then Jesus ups the ante a little bit. These are moving in order of ascending importance. Point number three, he points to his works. Christ's works bear witness to the truth. And then climactically, and most importantly, he points to the word. And so we'll close by looking at point number four. Christ's word bears witness to the truth. So witness, works, word, all as witness that substantiate the claims of Christ and the truth of Christ. And all this should convince and compel you to believe savingly and to live joyfully in light of the Christ who is life. So let's read this text together, and then we'll begin to tackle it. I'm going to read John chapter 5, picking up in verse 30, and I'm going to stop somewhat arbitrarily there at verse 40. So John 5, 30 through 40, but pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you would bow with me, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, now as we come before your word, I ask and pray that we would come humbly I ask and pray that we would come expectantly, excitedly. Father, you speak to us, your people. These are no mere words. These are your words. These are the um, words of eternal life, your living and active word by which you reveal yourself to us, mediate your presence to us, confront us, save us, change us, encourage us, comfort us. 
Father, we pray that you would do all of those things now here in this time. I pray that you would help me to be clear. I pray that you would help me to do all that I can to draw attention to you and to your goodness and to your glory. I pray that I would uh, decrease and that Christ would greatly increase. I pray that you would also help the hearing of your word. Father, help us to set aside for the next few minutes all the things that are uh, grabbing for our attention, all the things that are seeking to distract us and to focus us. Father, help us to focus on Christ. Father, show us who he is. Compel and convince us to believe and to love and to live in light of his wonderful revelation in these words. Father, we desperately need your help now in this time, and so we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, Jesus is the truth. First, look there at verse 30. In hindsight, I think I should have treated verse 30 with verses 24 through 29. I think the ESV's paragraph break there is, is unhelpful. All Jesus is doing in verse 30 is reiterating what he has already said in verses 19 through 20. He's just saying again that Father and Son are one. Christ is judge. That judgment will be perfectly just because Christ is God. And all that Jesus does, he does in perfect accord with the will of the Father who sent him. So 30 should have gone with what we already did, I think. But that's starting to move us toward the question of how many witnesses Jesus is, is marshalling here. Look at verse 31. Here we start to pick up our main theme. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony, remember, same word, my witness is not true. First of all, what does Jesus mean there? We've just established that Jesus himself is God. How could God's testimony not be true? Well, context is important here. Jesus is not saying that his testimony could in any way be false because he is, in fact, uh, the truth and the life. He is, though, in a sense, now on trial before the, religious, uh, the Jewish religious leaders. All the witness and testimony language testifies to that fact. And Jesus knows his audience. He knows the law. Deuteronomy 17.6 required the evidence of two or three witnesses for confirmation of a claim in court. And so Jesus is marshalling those witnesses. He is providing for them those required witnesses. So there's nothing wrong with his witness or his personal testimony. Right? He's just working in accordance with the law and bringing multiple witnesses to bear on the situation. But first, note the important word drop there at the end of verse 31. If he doesn't bring these witnesses, his testimony is not true. And here's where our first word is coming from. First point is coming from. We see the word again at the end of verse 32 and then truth in verse 33. So three verses we have true, true, truth. Right? That's some rapid repetition. And we truly have not yet given truth the attention that it deserves in John's gospel. It is one of his main themes. Why are we talking here so much about witness? Why is testimony so important? Because truth is so important. Aletheia in the Greek. Right? Were that not four syllables long? Right? We would maybe use that um, as one of the names for our little girl to come, hopefully. Uh, we find out Tuesday, by the way, if we got a little guy or a little gal uh, brewing in there. So we're excited about that. We'll let you know as soon as we know. We're, we're praying and hoping for a lady. But, but since Aletheia is too long to fit the pattern, we're leaning towards Vera. Not Greek, but Latin for true, from veritatis, uh, truth. Our girls have to memorize John 1 in Latin for school. And in the climactic verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, plenum gratiae et veritatis. I'm full of grace and truth. Henry, I didn't even plan this. He mentioned in Sunday school how we have to throw in Latin to sound intelligent. That's all, that's all that I'm doing here. Full of grace and truth. John, that's the first use of that word, a word that John uses 48 times in his gospel in comparison to a total of 10 uses in all three of the other gospels combined. 48 just in John, 10 in the other three. So this is important. And in that introductory first 18 verses of John 1, laying out all the important themes that he's going to unpack, for a second time in John 1.17, we read that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
John 14, 6, another confrontational claim of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 18, 37 through 38. Why did Jesus come? What, what was his purpose? Why was he born? He tells us, for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. That's pretty big. That's huge. Whatever is about to follow must be really important. It's the very reason he came. I have come to bear witness to the truth. And there's our word for today. Witness and witness is about truth. And that's why Jesus came. And in response, we get Pilate's huge but seemingly dismissive question. What is truth? It's a good question. <laughs> what is truth? Could you define truth? Well, most frequently, truth is, is defined as that which corresponds with reality. Right? Truth is that which corresponds with reality. And that's, that's true. But biblically, truth is even bigger. It's even better. But even with this kind of starting basic definition, we're starting to see what's on the line here and why witness is so important. Truth is that which accords with reality, with the way things actually are. And we understand that things only work and thrive when they are used in accordance with what they actually are and actually are for. If I insist on using my laptop as a hammer, things will not go so well for me and my laptop, right? I need to use it in accordance with reality, with the truth, with the production of 6,000 words sermons, right? Some of you think, I wish you wouldn't use it uh, for that. Um, but no, I have to use it in accordance with its truth to rightly benefit from it. It's, it's no different in life. Just as there is truth and there are laws in the physical realm, so there are in the moral realm and the spiritual realm. And thus to live rightly, to get out of life what we are supposed to, we have to know the truth and live in accordance with it. Truth is that which accords with reality. True, important, but scripture elevates the stakes even higher. Biblically, truth is a more personal, relational concept rooted in the very nature of God himself. Jesus has said, I am the truth. We've just been seeing Jesus is God. So God is truth. Therefore, his word, whatever he speaks or declares is truth. And so Psalm 33, 6 says that it was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus this is one of my favorite verses. Just try to wrap your brains around this. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so therefore it, he, is the reality to which uh, truth corresponds. And if truth is that which corresponds with reality, and God is reality, its creator and sustainer, its source and end, then truth is that which corresponds with God himself. Right? Revealed so clearly in Christ the truth. So you cannot know true truth, uh, a term Francis Schaeffer coined, you cannot know true truth apart from Christ. This is why Jesus has come, to make God known, to bear witness to the truth, the truth of the reality of God and the need then of our knowing the God who is reality and who is eternal life. That's why this whole section is about truth. And then Jesus says at the end, as we saw in verse 40, that they refuse to come to him, the one who bears witness to the truth, who is truth, that they may have life. Because truth and life are intimately connected. Life is found in truth. The truth of how things really are. The truth of the spiritual reality that undergirds the physical reality. The truth of the God who undergirds all of reality. Jesus wants you to know the truth because he knows that in knowing that truth is how you will live. And so that's why witness is such an important theme for John. Witness is important because truth is important. Truth is important because truth is life. Is your life lived in accordance with reality, with ultimate reality, the God who is reality? And we have to emphasize this. Because of how much our culture wants to de-emphasize this. And how much that is slowly starting to creep into churches. This is why we're annoying you with an insistence on the need to be doctrinally clear. 
and robust. Because doctrine is about truth, truth is about God, and God is life. And in a world that increasingly even denies the possibility of that truth, we need to ground ourselves deeper in it to protect the church, to protect its future, to protect our witness. The world wants you to believe that it doesn't matter what you believe. The world wants to talk about your truth and and what may be true for you and so on. Jesus wants nothing to do with any of that. There is no your truth. There is only the truth. And he walks onto the scene and he says, I am that truth. And he claims confrontationally that you will only find life and meaning and identity and satisfaction and joy as you, by God's grace, live in accordance with him as truth and as reality. And so the whole world was saying, look to yourself, pursue yourself, follow your heart. And then here is Jesus saying, don't do any of that. It's the exact opposite of that. Look to me. I'm life. I am truth. And so this, this, this couldn't be more important. And his claims today couldn't be more confrontational. And yet, if true, more comforting. And so because this is so important, Jesus substantiates his claims with these witnesses. What are they? Let's run through them. Point number two, John bears witness to the truth. Let's pick up back in verse 32. Look in verse 32. Jesus is giving corroborating witnesses to fulfill the legal requirement of two or three witnesses. The question is, what witness is he referring to in verse 32? He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Well, the very next verse, he starts talking about John. So it could be tempting to think that he's referring to John in verse 32. I don't think he's referring to John in verse 32. He'll talk about John in verse 33, but then he'll say in verse 34 that he's not ultimately talking about the testimony that he receives from man. Skip down to verse 36. Have it in front of you. You need your copies of Scripture open. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that he has is greater than man, greater than John. And then notice who he starts to talk about. Then he mentions the Father. And then a second time he mentions the Father. Beginning of verse 37, he mentions the Father Again, the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. So I think that the other who bears witness about Jesus in verse 32 is none other than God the Father himself. And here's why people count the witnesses that Jesus is using in this passage differently. The list is often John, the works, the Father, the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with that. That's 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 correct. Um, I'm trying to argue that it may be more accurate to see verse 32 as sort of the big idea, the main witness, the Father, and then the other three as the different means through which the Father bears that witness. It's not as if the Father is one witness among many. No, he is the witness. And he bears witness through John, and he bears witness through the works of Christ, and he bears witness through the Scriptures. And so... If significant claims deserve substantial support, Jesus starts by giving the most substantial support. God the Son points to God the Father as the witness, testimony, evidence, proof that supports and corroborates his claims. Right? We look to authority figures. I, quote, I probably quote theologians too much, right? but it's probably an attempt to substantiate my claims and to look correct and accurate. And tell, like, well, if Spurgeon says it, it must be true, right? So we, we, we look to authorities to substantiate what it is that we are claiming. Jesus is looking to the authority. He says, God himself testifies to the truth of what I have been claiming here. And so God the Father bears witness in these multiple ways, but we first look at the witness of John the witness. Remember, there are two Johns here. There's John the author, and then there, he's the one that's writing this, and he's now writing about this John in this book, never called John the Baptist. He's more John the witness. That's John's identity and role as divine, defined in verse 33. Jesus says he has borne witness to the truth. So we were first introduced to John back in John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we get John in like three times. Witness, witness, witness. Then one nineteen, 
begins. This is the testimony or witness of John. Right? So, so John's entire role is wrapped up in witness. And if witness is testimony, if it is that which gives evidence and establishes truth, if it is a, a declaration or an affirmation of reason or evidence to the truth of something, well, then that means that a witness must be a word. Right? A witness is a word about something. Well, so what is the word that John gives as witness? And here's the question. How does John's word give testimony or evidence to the truth of Christ? Well, look at John chapter 1, verse 29. What was John's message? What was his main message? He sees him and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, what a wonderfully loaded word. And what a truth-confirming witness, I believe. How? How does this corroborate and confirm Christ's claims? Okay, remember what truth is, that which accords with reality. Right, I think John's statement is such a good, substantial witness because of how well it accords with reality in contrast to everything else out there. I've shared before how important this truth was for my conversion. Right? God, in his wise and gracious sovereignty, allowed me a disturbing experience of my own wretchedness and an uncomfortable awareness of the darkness and evil in my own heart. It was very evident in college in my pornography use and how I treated women, uh, what I thought about and, and how I interacted with others, how I was using my time. I was just generally a terrible person. And I was increasingly becoming painfully aware of that fact. But as I looked around and talked with people and talked with professors and I was studying world religions at, at UNC and as I was listening to the world, the message was generally the same. You're all right. You're a good person. You know, just be yourself. Just try a little harder. Just follow your heart. No, but I knew my heart. I had seen what happened when I was myself. I knew the world was wrong. I knew that I had a problem. And it was the brutal honesty of Scripture that began to grab me and save me. The truth, Romans 3.10, that none is righteous, that you, Matthew, are not righteous, no, not one, that you do not understand, that you are not seeking for God. The truth, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it was the spirits working through that word to kind of make it aware. Was, oh, that's me. That's true. That word corresponds with my experience of reality. I knew that I had a sin problem, and it wasn't hard to see that everyone else had a sin problem as well. And then here's this John, this witness, and his word testifies of one who comes to take away sin. Oh, <laughs> that's it. That's what I need. Nobody else is talking about this. No one else is claiming to do this. This could then be my only hope. And this one who takes away sin is also called the Lamb of God. You know, I was raised in the church. I was taught well enough and knew enough of my Old Testament to understand that lambs were for sacrifice, that lambs were substitutes, that lambs died in the place of sinners. And then here is this one, this man who is God, Jesus Christ, who takes away sin. And so he must then do it if he is a lamb uh, by dying as a sacrifice, as a substitute in my place. And so by the grace of God, I finally saw it. And by the grace of God, I lived. And it was in part due to the truth of this testimony that corresponded with the truth of the reality of sin and evil in my heart. And then the truth of the wonderful gospel message that provided a solution for that sin. Jesus came to take it away by taking my place. And that's how John witnesses to the truth that is Christ, both his person and his work. But the whole world is telling you, just listen to the world and then compare it to your own heart and compare it to the news. It's, they're wrong. They're completely wrong. It's only scripture that says, oh man, yes, has great dignity. Oh, but man is wretchedly broken and ruined by man's sin. It's there in scripture. There's the truth. And so John bears witness to that Fact. And so Jesus goes on to say of John, back in chapter 5, verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp. So Christ is the light, John is the lamp. Oh, but he was a bright lamp. 
A burning and shining one. And what does a burning and shining light do? It attracts. It, it shines and reveals. John's purpose was to point to Christ, to witness to Him, and John's testimony supported and substantiated the claims of Christ. So look at verse 34. Jesus is about to move on from John. He's about to move on to even greater and more convincing testimony. But I don't want you to miss what Jesus says there in the second part of the verse. He doesn't need the testimony of man, but he gives it. Why does he say that he gives it? Look at the end of verse 34. This is important. I say these things so that you may be saved. That's wonderful. Read that in light of verses 16 and 18. The very people he spoke those words to were persecuting Jesus. Verse 18, were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. And Jesus' response to them, words, so that they may be saved. This is going to be important. This is, we're going to end with this. Here we're starting to see something important and unique. Here we're seeing uh, the, the great kindness and great compassion of Christ. But I want you to hold on to that for a minute. I want you to sit in that and store that away. And I want to come back to that at the end. Because this, I want to argue, is the witness that you need. So I want to close with this. But I want to first quickly keep moving. Look at point number three. The works as witness. And look at verse 36. The works bear witness to the truth. Jesus has a testimony that is greater than that of John's. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. All right, so the works of Christ bear witness to the truth of Christ. We won't spend a ton of time here because we've talked a lot about the works recently, or as John tends to refer to them as the, the signs. We saw the first mention of these back in chapter 2, verse 11. Jesus has turned the water to wine, and we read this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And so you remember, signs are never the point. Right? The point of signs is to point to something else. Signs signify something else. And that verse makes that clear. The point of the sign was to manifest or to reveal his glory. In other words, to manifest or reveal the truth of who Jesus really is. And so when we get caught up with the signs and focus on the signs, and when we obsessively look for signs and miracles today, well, we may have entirely missed the point. The point of the signs was to draw attention to Jesus and to who he is. You're not supposed to look at the sign. You're supposed to look through the sign to the worker of the sign. This was the purpose of the miracles. I'll flip quickly to Hebrews 2, if you would like. I want to look at this for just a second. Page 1001 in the Pew Bible. This is a very important passage, I think. Hebrews 2. Here's why. We're not running around looking for signs and seeking out miracle workers, right? Go see Tabitha instead. Don't go see Benny Hinn. Um, this passage would be a big reason why we call tongues and prophecy and miraculous healings. This is why we would call those things sign gifts. And we would argue that Scripture is clear that these gifts are no longer for today, right? Because the reality to which they witnessed has now come. So look down there at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews is talking about the great message of salvation, first declared by the Lord, then attested by those who heard him or his apostles. And then verse 4, look at 4. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see what he's saying there? The point of the signs and wonders was to bear witness to the word, to the message of salvation. They were the evidence that confirms the authority of Christ and his claims. And then it certifies those that Christ had commissioned to preserve and pass on his word. The point was to never look at the signs, but to listen to the ones who could do the signs. Right? The works never had saving value, but evidential value. Not saving value, but supporting value. That's how the works are supposed to work. All of a sudden, here is this Jesus making water into wine, healing a child on death's door, healing a man paralyzed for 38 years, and you're supposed to see that and see the uniqueness of that. Oh, nobody can do that. Wait, this guy's obviously doing that. Oh, maybe I should listen to this guy. Right? The sight of the works is supposed to encourage the hearing of the word. 
God's messengers have the power to perform miracles to authenticate the message. See this? Listen to this, the signs say. You see, I can't do the signs or the wonders or the miracles. I I can give you some of my clothes if you want, but they will not heal you. I can lay my hands upon you and pray for you, but it will not heal you. Why? Because I've already got the word. The the Lord is not delivering new words through me, but he has given me the great privilege of ministering to you the word that he has already given. And this word is wonderful, as we're about to see. And so we go to the word and not the works. The works of Jesus were meant to bear witness to the truth of Jesus. Nicodemus got this. We saw this back in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Correct. And if God is with him, then you should listen to him. Right? Oh, God is with you. Oh, yeah, I, I want to know what you have to say. Right? Don't stop at the sign. Look to the doer of the sign. Listen to the words of the one who does the works, because that's the point of the works. Again, I know that sometimes, though, this is hard for us. I, I know. And, and sometimes we're tempted to think, no, if, you know, if I could just see a miracle, right? you know, if I could just have that, that evidence, that proof. If I could have just been there and seen some of the signs, then I'd believe. Then I could know. But no, we know that doesn't work because they were there. They saw the signs and their response. We already saw it in verse 16 and 18, persecuting Jesus, seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Remember, part one of John is the first 11 chapters called the book of signs, seven signs culminating in the climactic sign, raising of Lazarus from the dead. What a sign. The whole point is life. The point of the sign is to point to Jesus as the Lord of life, as the one more powerful than death. You're going to die. Your death is coming. It is inevitable. It is looming and it ends everything. Christ is the only one who has power over death. That's the point of the sign. A man was dead. The man Jesus speaks a word and the dead man lives. Amazing. We'd like to see that, wouldn't we? Surely we'd believe if we saw that, wouldn't we? John eleven forty seven. 47. The Pharisees knew that Jesus raised a man from the dead. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. That sign. They're not denying that he just raised Lazarus from the dead. John eleven fifty three. From that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. See, signs do not save. Signs without the word. Signs without the spirit who works through the word actually only further condemn. So yes, Christ's works bear witness to the truth. Yes, if someone can raise a man from the dead, you should listen to him. If someone can raise himself from the dead, then you should listen to him. But the signs alone will not convince you of the truth that is Christ. You have to let the signs lead you to the word that they were meant to confirm. And that's exactly where Christ is trying to lead you in his escalating argument. Point number four. Last one. Christ's word bears witness to the truth. The order here is not accidental. Jesus does nothing haphazardly. Here's the question. Why is this the last one? Why does Jesus move from John to works to word? Well, think of it in light of the text's trial terminology. I've never been a big fan of courtroom dramas, but in a criminal case, the prosecution generally builds its argument. They do so through witnesses, and generally they do so through witnesses of ascending importance. Right? The, the first witness may give evidence that proves the defendant was in the area at the time of the crime. Right? They're trying to establish culpability, the possibility of committing the crime. The second witness may give evidence that the defendant had motive for the crime, and on and on and on it goes, until the last witness, the star witness. You generally save the best for last, I witnessed the defendant commit the crime. He's the one who did it. The star witness. Scripture is Christ's star witness. Look at verse 37. Verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Paul's. What exactly is Jesus talking about? Could it be his baptism when the voice of the Father was heard, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased? Maybe, 
I'm not opposed to that. But keep reading. Read on into verse 38. Look at, look at where Jesus goes. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Now, I've already argued that it's ultimately the Father testifying through John, through the works. And so maybe Jesus is just generally talking about all the ways in which the Father is testifying to him. That's very possible. But I think that ultimately Jesus is talking here about the word. Because that's what Jesus begins to discuss in verse 39. Look at it. You search the scriptures, the word, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And worry not that we're towards the end of our time because the word is worth two weeks. The rest of this passage, we're breaking here because the rest of this passage goes on to further argue both the importance and the purpose of the word. So we're going to come back and focus on this entirely next week. But for now, how would you answer this question? What is the primary purpose of Scripture? What is the chief end of Scripture? Jesus is making his point here, I think. The chief end of Scripture is to point to Christ and to glorify Christ. That's what Jesus is telling us here. It is they, and remember, there are no New Testament Scriptures yet. When Jesus is here talking, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, it is they that bear witness about me. And so this is one of six times in John's gospel where scripture or a writer of Old Testament scripture is said to speak or write of Christ. The fifth one is at the end of our chapter. So that's what we're going to focus on and tackle next week. But if this is the purpose of scripture, the question then for us is, do we use the scriptures in accordance with their primary purpose? How do you use the scriptures? And, and what do you use them for? Right? Is it the kind of you wake up in the morning, you pick a random spot, and you're like, all right, this is going to be my you know, word of encouragement for the day uh, kind of thing. You know, we all use the scriptures in some weird, crazy ways. But in this text that is all about truth and witnesses to that truth, Jesus here bears witness to the truth of the scripture's entire point being to point to himself. If truth is that which accords with reality, and this is the truth of the purpose of Scripture, then we only use Scripture rightly when we use it in accordance with that purpose. When we use it to see and savor Jesus Christ. All of our reading, all of our Scripture use should be in accordance with that ultimate purpose. And so this should then make us very discerning and very cautious about People, churches, whoever, who kind of are somewhat using the scriptures, but it becomes very clear that they're not using them for this purpose. They're not using it for the purpose of the revelation of the glory of Christ and of his grace and of our call to repent and believe in him. Everything has to be done in accordance with this reality. And so do you search the scriptures as the primary witness bearer to the goodness and glory, the bigness and beauty, the kindness and compassion of Christ. I asked you a couple of minutes ago to keep that thought in mind, Jesus' word in verse 34, that they may be saved in light of their works in verses 16 and 18, persecuting, seeking to kill him. Here's a question that you may be asking. All right, John Bears witness to the truth of Jesus. The works and the word bear witness to the truth of Jesus. But John is dead. I cannot ask John. I cannot witness John as he bears witness. The works are done, you've just said. I cannot ask Jesus. I cannot witness the works that supposedly witness to Jesus. Both of those, by the way, are only found in the word. The word that you say bears witness to the truth of Jesus. So... How can I trust that word? How can I know that the words that supposedly bear witness to the truth are itself true? It's a great question. Come back next week. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, please do come back next week. But we're going to tackle this in more detail next week. But I want to tackle it briefly for now. How can we know that this word in which we find the Christ who is life is true? Well, you know, the simplest answer And I think the answer that Jesus is driving at implicitly, uh, I'm stating here, and the answer that I find the most compelling and utterly convincing is precisely because of the person and the work of the Christ that is revealed in this word. Follow me? What, what, What is that? What do I mean? 
You know, we could go. I could. We we could talk about the number of Greek manuscripts and how old they are. We could talk about the historical evidence uh, for the accuracy of the text. We could talk about archaeology's confirmation of the truths of Scripture. We could talk about external sources to Christ. We could talk about the impact Christ had on history and humanity as evidence of His truth. All those things are good and helpful and have their place. I used to be obsessed with those things. I used to be obsessed with apologetics and arguments. Again, nothing wrong with those. But I have found that they may not be as effective and as important as I once thought. What is my main goal when talking to someone about Jesus? How can I have any hope in convincing anyone of the truth of Jesus? Only by confronting them with the Christ that is contained in the scriptures. That's it. My only aim and only hope is to bring them into contact with Christ through the word of Christ. Why? Because of how compelling and convincing and how beautiful and glorious that Christ is. I am convinced of the truths of Scripture because I have been captured by the Christ revealed in those Scriptures. I know that they are true because the Christ that they contain is so amazing that no man could have come up with him, that no person could have created this character. It is his inherent glory and goodness that convinces me of the truth of both Christ and the scriptures that reveal that Christ. It is Christ's, what Jonathan Edwards called, admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. I love that phrase. Admirable conjunction coming together of diverse excellencies. It is the amazing way that all of these qualities of Christ as Edwards, Edwards argues, qualities that are seemingly incompatible are all found together in this one person. John the witness cried out a moment ago that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But when John the author hears of Jesus in Revelation 5.5, he hears, Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But in the next verse, when John sees Jesus, he sees a Lamb standing as though slain. Likewise, Edwards argues, in Christ we see both infinite glory and the lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, deepest reverence toward God and equality with God, infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil, an exceeding spirit of obedience, supreme dominion over all, absolute sovereignty and perfect submission, total self-sufficiency and total trust and reliance on God. It is in the one person of Christ that we see both perfect majesty and profound meekness. He is here in this passage claiming to be God himself, and yet he comes and heals the lowest and the least. He has just claimed to be judge over all, and yet in the face of the persecution and the seeking of his death by the religious leaders, he speaks to them words of grace that they may be saved. You see, it is this Christ that compels and convinces me of the truth and the trustworthiness of Scripture. He himself is the substantial support of his significant claims. And he is found in this word, this living and active word, the word that bears witness to this truth, the word by which we come to him to find the life that we're looking for. Right? The word is the witness that you need, and it is a convincing witness. And convincing witness should compel confident belief. And do you believe? Great. Do you know why you believe? Do you believe? Great. Are you finding comfort and joy and peace in what you claim to believe? You see, my encouragement to you is to look closer and to look longer. Maybe you are sad today. Maybe life is hard today. The Christ that is contained in these scriptures is more than capable of comforting you and supporting you and carrying through um, whatever it is um, that you are facing. Um, he is the one who is both perfect in power and perfect in love. And I'm trying to argue to you that it is his very person that demonstrates without a shadow of a doubt that these words must be clear because he is so glorious and so wonderful that there is no other possibility except he is the truth. Do you believe in this Christ? 
Have you been captured by him? And are you in love with him and growing in your knowledge of him and your joy in living in life in light of him? If not, dive in. Further up and further in, right? Read and study and look at this Christ who is life. Do you believe? Maybe not. Do you know why you do not believe if you are here with us this morning and you don't? I encourage you to consider this Christ and his claims. I or Mike or or many people in here would be happy to sit down and read through the Gospel of John with you and read through uh, the Gospel of Mark with you. Church, there's your apologetic hope and help. Get someone to read about Jesus Christ and ask the Spirit to then work to show them who this Christ is. Confront yourself with his person and his works. Read of him and believe, I believe, that you will see that there is nothing like him. Read of him and ask the spirit of truth to um, open your eyes to the truths of his words. Because truth is about life. And Jesus claims that he is both the truth and the life. That is a significant claim. And I believe that he himself provides substantial support. Uh, for that claims. So look to him and listen to him. And my prayer is that we would all of us increasingly find our everything in this Christ. If you would bow with me and let's close this time with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for this wonderful revelation and confirmation of who he is and all his power and glory and all his meekness. Father, all his kindness and compassion for those who are his. Father, we ask that you would show us Christ. Father, our response to Christ does not come near to matching the revelation of who he is. Father, my response to Christ does not come near to matching the revelation of who he really is here. We desperately, all of us, uh, need your help to see and to love um, this Christ. Father, knowing this Christ and growing in that knowledge and resting in it and rejoicing in him would change everything. And so we ask that you would change us. We ask that we would read everything through the lens of this glorious gospel and of this wonderful good news. Teach us and train us to take these truths, which are so much more than just um, propositional truths, bare intellectual facts. Father, help us to look through these as reality as we look at everything around us in light of them and live and respond to everything in light of them and in light of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Father, we deserved death. We had rejected and rebelled against you, and yet you gave us life. You came for us. Uh, You sent your son who gave himself for us so that we could have you and eternal life and satisfaction and pleasure and joy with you uh, forever and always. Father, fill us with great joy. Forgive us for how apathetic we are when it comes to the things of God at times. Father, capture us with the beauty and the glory of Christ. We ask and we pray all in his name. Amen.